like first service. That's awesome. That's right. Well, good morning again. If you have your Bibles, we are continuing our verse-by-verse study through the book of 1 Peter. We are in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, and we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 16. If you need a Bible to follow along with us, raise your hand and we'll get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16 this morning. Right, starting in verse 13, the Apostle Peter is writing and he says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy for I am holy. The title of my study this morning is Living Right Side Up in an Upside Down World. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, Lord, to be in your word and to know, Lord, that you're ready to speak to our hearts through your word. And that excites us because we know that you have something to say to each one of us here this morning. We thank you, Lord, for this facility that you provided for us. We thank you, Lord, for just the sweet time of worship that we had, that we can just praise you and and, and honor you with our lips. And now, Lord, we just want to honor you, Lord, as we focus in on your word and what you have for us this morning. We pray your blessing upon our time together, Lord. We pray your blessing upon our children downstairs in the children's ministry as they are taught your word at the same time, Lord, and as they worship you, Lord, that they would be drawn closer into their relationship with you. And we pray, Lord, also, if there's anyone here who's yet to come into a saving knowledge of your son, Jesus Christ, Lord, that they would see their need for salvation this morning and they would turn from their sin and turn towards you today. We pray that, Lord. We pray for these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I found a story about a California driver's license examiner who told the story about a teenager who had just driven an almost perfect test. He made only one mistake, said the examiner. When he stopped to let me out of the car, after breathing a sigh of relief, the boy exclaimed, I'm sure glad I don't have to drive like that all the time. <laughs> you know, the boy is a lot like church-going Americans. They put a good front on when, you know, when they know someone is watching, but the rest of the time they kind of let down their standards. Sadly, for a lot of Christians, there's not much difference between them and, and those in the world, except they you know, go to church a little more uh, of the time. Christians watch the same TV shows and movies for the same number of hours weekly as everyone else. Christian youths are involved in sexual immorality at the same extent as those naming the Christ as Savior. Many Christian businessmen have bad reputations. It would seem that our Christianity doesn't have much effect on the way that we live. It's because of that that I believe that, that, that we have no greater text that needs to be burned into our hearts than that of 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 16. I think we can relate to this because Peter's writing to many who had come from pagan backgrounds, from heathen backgrounds, living in a pagan society where where there's this great pressure on them to conform and to change, to go along with the crowd. 
And so Peter here calls his readers to a life of holiness, to be set apart, living right side up in an upside down world. And in so doing, he makes three points, and these are three points that we're going to look at this morning, how we need to, number one, gird up, number two, sober up, and number three, grow up. Number one, we need to gird up. Look at verse 13. Peter begins by saying, therefore. Now, whenever we see a therefore, we look to find out what it's there for. Well, this is referring to the previous verses that Peter, we looked at already with Peter, you know, therefore, because Christ is our hope of glory, therefore, because he's begotten us to a living hope and inheritance, this great salvation that verses 10 through 12 tell us that the prophets studied and longed to understand this great salvation that the angels pondered at, that Jesus provided for us. Peter says, therefore, in verse 13, gird up the loins of your mind. Now, that phrase may sound a little bit bizarre. I've heard of windmills of my mind. I've heard of cobwebs in my mind. But how do I gird up the loins of my mind? It sounds foreign, maybe even creepy to our ears. What are loins doing in my mind in the first place? And how do I gird them up? Actually, to the people that Peter's writing this to, they would have understood clearly what this meant because it's an old phrase that could be translated clench up or belt up. And it comes from 2,000 years ago when the men back there dressed in these long flowing robes. It was the fashion of the day. It was cool. It, it looked good. It was very practical. But the problem with it was if you wanted to run or if you wanted to work, the, the robe would get in the way. And, and oftentimes, you know, men would step on the foot of the robes and then face plant down on the ground. And so they had to come up with something. They had to, 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 to sash it up, you know. And so, you know, a lot like when I, we do weddings here at the church. And the bride, you know, we have the wedding rehearsal and the, the bride is coming up the stairs right here. I said, now tomorrow you're going to be wearing this gown. It's a whole different story when you're wearing a gown coming up these stairs. Watch where you work. You need to, to, to lift up, bunch up, gird up you know, uh, the dress there. And so, same thing. 2,000 years ago, a man who wanted to work would gird up or cinch up his robe and, and tuck it into his belt around his waist. I think the modern equivalent of what Peter is saying here in this verse would be, roll up the sleeves of your mind. Simply put, get, get, get ready. Get mentally prepared. Pull in all those loose ends of your thinking and get rid of anything that would, would hinder your forward movement and walking with the Lord. Gird up the loins of your mind. Think clearly. Paul the Apostle would uh, write in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5 that we're to cast off or cast down arguments in every, every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. In other words, gather up all of our attitudes and all of our outlooks on life and place them all under Jesus' authority, taking every thought captive unto Jesus Christ. Now, I think we could better understand what Peter's saying here when he says gird up our, our minds if we look at the opposite condition. What's the opposite of girding up? It's, it's to let loose or to let down, it's to be lax. Some Christians think are very lax and loose in their thinking and their approach to life. Three ways in particular I want to point out. Some people are lax in their mentality as it relates to their faith. They've expected, um, they've, they've, they've accepted rather a smorgasbord of theology. I'll take a little bit of that, a little bit of this, whatever works, whatever I like fits in my life, I'll take. But if I don't like that, 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 that I'm not going to take that. And their, their, their relationship with the Lord is all based upon experiences. There's no firmness in their doctrine, whichever way the wind blows, they're going to go with it. And because many people's faith are experience-driven, 
We've watched the church over the years adapt many new age practices within the church. So much so that because people are longing for that, that experience, we have mega churches packed with people wanting to experience the next new thing. In other words, today's church is becoming a modern new age supermarket where pleasurable and hedonistic God experiences are handed out like fresh fruit. Let me give you just four examples that are going on today in churches and some of the big churches in the United States. There is this thing called contemplative prayer, ecstasis worship, fire tunnels, and sozo. And these are all new age emotional experiences that have come into the Christian church. Now, I've talked about a few of these before, but, but let me go over just a couple of them. I'll go over them briefly. Contemplative prayer. They also call this centering prayer. It teaches a meditative practice where the focus is on having this mystical experience with God. Individuals choose a, a sacred word or symbol and they repeat it over and over again during the 20-minute exercise, sitting comfortably in a meditative posture with the back straight and eyes closed and a sacred word is introduced, uh, you know, and, and, and to really to, to consent to, to God's presence within now, should some outside thought emerge in your mind, you must return ever so gently to your sacred word. At the end of your prayer time, you, you, you're to remain in silence and eyes closed for a few minutes and sit still listening for direct guidance from God and feeling His presence. Listen, contemplative prayer is no different than any, many, many of the meditative exercises used in Eastern religions and New Age cults. Then there's this thing called ecstatic worship. I just read this thing just recently. It means to, ecstatic means to, to stand outside of oneself or to be removed to somewhere else. Removed to somewhere else. They have what's called ecstatic or trance dancing. And it's known in every pagan culture. And it's meant to bring the participant to a level of excitement called ecstasy. That's where they get the word ecstatic from ecstasy. It's commonly practiced in, in shamanism. But when it's brought into the Christian church... They put a Christian theme to it, so they call it ecstatic worship. Let me, let me give you what this false teacher, Patricia King, how she describes it. Ecstatic worship combines beats, electronic musical expressions, dance, prayer, and a powerful prophetic flow to create a Christian rave experience. It's a chance to dance our way into a trance where we move beyond ourselves to connect with the divine source and bring back the vision of a fuller, more potent existence. Once again, a new age supermarket where pleasurable and hedonistic God experiences are handed out like fresh fruit. How about fire tunnels? I'm not making this stuff up. This, this is stuff out there. Fire tunnels now, or when Christians, they, they form a, a tunnel. You know, you get on either side there. They form a tunnel. And, and while walking through the tunnel, the ones that form the tunnel lay hands on the person walking through the tunnels and, and, and bless you as you walk through. Now, during this operation, supposedly, you're giving the person walking through a piece of the Holy Spirit. So by the time they, they make it to the end of the tunnel of fire, they're, they're drunk in the Spirit. They start laughing in the Spirit, and some will fall down in the Spirit. And again, when we look to the Eastern religions that are out there, we find the same manifestations happen as a result of what is called Kundalini. And finally, Sozo. We've looked at this before. I told you my daughter calls it Sozo Bozo reason for it. I mean, it's described as encouraging the sozi into a mild trance by being led into a series of mental, emotional rooms or stages where the person connects to their deeper feelings and thoughts and comes to have a new experience with God. Very much like a, a seance session. 
All of these things are all about experience, experience-driven. The trouble with contemplative prayer, ecstasis worship, fire tunnels, and sozo is the same old New Age Eastern mysticism wrapped neatly in Christian wrapping paper. Listen, I'm all for getting alone and quiet and spending quiet times with my Lord and experiencing His presence in my life. But I want to do it the way the Lord describes that I should do it, which is found in His Word, Joshua 1.8. Puts it this way, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. The problem with most churches today is that they've neglected the Word of God. The Word, if the Word of God was the priority in churches today, we would not be led away by every wind of doctrine that comes away. The church would be strong. The church would be light and salt and effective witness for the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. But instead, sadly, many of these church services are all based upon experience. And you hear advertisement for these churches. Come to our church and experience God. Forget about doctrine. Forget about teaching. It's all about the experience. But it's dangerous because it draws people away from the Word and it draws them close to the experience. That's why Peter says, gird up your minds. Don't let your mind take in things that God's Word comes against. And so Christians are very lax and loose in their thinking and in their approach to life when it comes to their faith. Number two, Christians are very lax and loose in their thinking and their approach to life when it comes to morality. I think that's very evident. They think of nothing to go to places where immoral behavior is promoted or where God's name is blasphemed. They think of nothing in sitting down and watching a movie that's going to show nudity or sex scenes or vulgarity. And they say, oh, it's not that bad. I mean, it's got really a good story. Listen, if you want good stories, read the Bible. It's chock full of good stories. But when it comes to our views of morality, we're lax when when it comes to the Internet. We know the internet today is a plethora of filth for the mind to engage in morality. Wives are grieving every single day as they find out their husbands are addicted to pornography. Marriages are being destroyed all the time due to it. The American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers, how's that for a group, reports that 56% of divorce cases involve one party having an obsessive interest in pornographic websites. And yet the crazy thing is you got people out there going, oh, no, it's not that, that big of a deal. I mean, God is gracious. He'll forgive me. It's not that bad. You know, Isaiah had something strong to say about that, describing our day. He said in Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Yesterday morning on my way to men's prayer breakfast, I listened to Ravi Zacharias, and he's on the radio, and I, and I love his teaching. The man's... He's a genius, but he was talking about the time he was at a conference where he spoke out where the audience was about 40,000 college-age students. Largest audience he's ever spoken to, he said. They were from the age of 18 to 24 years old, representing over 1,680 colleges and universities from 51 different countries. He said that he asked them to send in their questions, and he said that he was amazed at the top two questions among these 40,000 18 to 24-year-old students. The top number one question was this. How do we deal with the enslavement of pornography? Number two, the second question, how do I resist the urge to kill myself? Doesn't it just break your heart? It breaks my heart. Sensuality and suicide were the two main issues in the minds of these college students. 
Ravi says, quote, I believe the two are connected. The one is the devaluation of others and the other is, is the result, the ultimate devaluation of self. 40,000 students, top two questions. And we need to reach this generation. We need to reach out to them. We need to give them hope. They need to see hope is in Jesus Christ. One of the reasons I want to bring up to you this morning, I was going to wait until later on, uh, but back in June, we as a church purchased a building, some property, two buildings. It's the old Seiko building here in, in Springfield. Brick buildings, they've been there since 1930. They are uh, maybe a half a mile, if that, up from Missouri State University. It's a block down from OTC. It's another half a mile over from uh, Drury University. I mean, these college it is all around this property. We have a plan to remodel it and complete it and have it done somewhere and, and move, be able to move in sometime in 2019. I don't want to show you a picture of it because it looks pretty bad and you guys would go, Tom, you're nuts. Okay, you're crazy. You know, what are you doing? Uh, but but I'm going to as soon as I have I have a draft where she's, she's drawn up some pictures for it. And I'll get it and I'll show it to you. But here's my point. I bring that up because I think we need to be reaching this culture today with the hope that we have a culture that's being so heavily influenced by the world around them. Give them an opportunity where they can just walk to church, you know, and, and we need to reach them because not only this generation, we need to reach all generations, when it comes to morality, and, and we need to, to get them the doctrine and the theology, what God's Word says, and to know that there's hope. And the third way that people are laxed or loose, loose is in their business dealings. I think that is a big one that Christians rationalize the most in. They're dishonest in their business dealings or in the way they treat people or customers. They're not dishonest in the way that they cut corners. And they rationalize it by saying, oh, it's no big deal. I mean, you've got to make a living. Reminds me of a story about a group of friends who went hunting. They paired off in twos for the day. That night, one of the hunters returned alone, staggering under an eight-point buck. Where's Harry, he was asked. Well, Harry had a stroke of some kind. He's a couple of miles back up the trail. You left Harry laying there and carried the deer back? Well, said the hunter, I figured no one was going to steal Harry. <laughs> See, a lot of times when it comes to what we want in life, we let our concern for other people go out the window. If we want to move ahead in business, doesn't matter who we step on or what we say bad about the other person, it's all about moving up in my job. Even though they hear message after message on Sunday morning on the truth of the Bible, on morality, on honesty... They may feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, but they never deal with it. They're convicted when the Spirit of God tells them to stay away from some new wind of doctrine, but they don't do anything about it. They're convicted when the Holy Spirit uh, you know, shows you how pornography is sin and damaging to a person's life, but yet nothing is done about it. They don't surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Listen, it's got to change. Now we know that God is the one who changes our hearts. You can't change your heart, but you can change your mind. And if you choose to change your mind, then God will change your heart. So that's what it means to repent. It means to change one's mind and, and one's direction, to stop the direction you're going and turn and go the other way. It's been said that your outlook determines your outcome, but your attitude determines your action. So you have to have a, a change of mind and a change of attitude towards sin to get the heart that you want. Listen, if you want a heart that's pleasing to the Lord in all your actions, and not a heart that's always under the conviction of the Holy Spirit because of your actions, then we've got to change our minds. 
Gird up the loins of your mind and change the way you think and look at things. Get our focus back where it needs to be on Jesus Christ. So Peter says, gird up the loins of your mind. That's point number one, gird up. Number two, Peter says, sober up. Peter says, what you need to do here this morning is be sober. You're thinking, well, well, I'm sober this morning. Well, that's wonderful. I'm glad you're sober this morning. <laughs> but it means more than, than don't be drunk. But rather, think clearly and be morally decisive. See, girding up the loins of our minds deals primarily with our thoughts, how to think rightly. But, but being sober here speaks of how we should act. How we should act. Actually, the word sober simply means the opposite of being intoxicated. Now, we've all seen people who are intoxicated by alcohol or drugs. We watch how it alters their behavior, the way they walked and the way they talked, and their ability to operate motor vehicles, their ability even to find their way home. But listen, people can become intoxicated by other things as well, not just drugs or alcohol. They can become intoxicated by their circumstances. The whole outlook on life is determined by what's going on in their life presently. In other words, their lives are controlled by their emotions. And as a result, their behavior is influenced by whatever emotion is controlled over them at the time. It could be fear or anxiety or anger or doubt or depression. Something that has a controlling influence over your life. The point where they're literally intoxicated by their emotions and the way in which they think and act and talk and deal with other people, it's all determined by their emotions. Some people are drunk with anxiety. They can't even go out of their house because of fear and anxiety. Some people are drunk with anger, always uptight about something. And you hear it come out in their speech. They're always negative or, or critical, abusive, degrading. Some people are drunk on worry. Worry is taking control of their lives. They're always anxious, always freaking out over things that they don't need to freak out over. Never relaxed. Always analyzing every situation, constantly playing the, the what-if game. What if I lose my job? What if, what if the economy collapses? What if we get bombed? What if, the, what if I get sucked into a black hole in space and disappear into oblivion? Listen, the people that Peter was writing to were going through real persecution, real struggles, where they didn't know if they were going to live another day. They didn't know if this happened to be the day that they were to be put to death for their faith. So by Peter exhorting them to be sober, he's saying, listen, don't be drunk with fear. Don't be drunk with anxiety or revenge or anger. Don't allow those emotions to control your life or your outlook or your actions in life. Don't be controlled by your emotions. Rather, he says, look at verse 13, be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I love that. Instead of being caught up in this emotional chaos and havoc, instead of freaking out over every little thing, Peter says, rest, relax, breathe a little bit. You know, rest in the hope that is in yours in Christ Jesus. And we looked at that already, what it means to have the hope in Christ. So how can we rest in a world that's so messed up? It's because of the grace that's brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There is hope in Jesus in a relationship with him. He will give life beyond the grave. He give your life worth living on this earth. He will give you life after death and life during death, or during death, during life, if you just come to him. Someone once said, when the outlook is bad, try the uplook. Look to the Lord. So, number one, gird up. Number two, sew up. Or find up so, sober up. And number three, our final point, grow up. Look at verses 14 through 16. As obedient children, not conforming yourself to the former lust as in the ignorance, 
But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Peter says, As obedient children. Now I'm reminded of, of the mother who was struggling with her son to obey, and she got to the point where she just couldn't handle his disobedience any longer. After an especially trying day, she finally flung up her hands and shouted, All right, Billy, do whatever you want. Let me see you disobey that. That's not what Peter's saying here. As obedient children literally means children of obedience. The obedience Peter's talking about is more of who we are and, and not something that we do. I don't know if you've ever had someone compliment you on, on, on your children. Oh, you have such obedient children. You go, well, you don't see them all the time like I do. But, 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 but I mean, you're, you're blessed by that. Why? Because they learn to be obedient. That's who they are. In the same way, we're to be as obedient children of the Lord because we've grown in our relationship with the Lord. We've learned to be obedient because of who we are. So that in verse 14, which Peter says, we are no longer conforming ourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance. That word conforming means to fashion or to model after. It's a picture of a model who's portraying a certain look. You're going after a certain look. Now, many of you know that I was a teenager in the 70s. I can't help that. That was just the way I was born. But in the 70s, we had a certain look. One word, disco, okay? You know, polyester knit, super bell-bottom pants, you know, two-tone shoes, platform shoes. They had like three inches on them, you know, for the guys. And open-collared paisley silk shirt with the top three buttons open all the way down and you portrayed a certain look, you know, Mr. Disco, you know, I mean, just. Now, the last thing that I would ever, ever want to do is to conform myself back to that former look. That's what Peter's saying here. Don't conform yourself to your former lust as in your ignorance. Don't go back there. And I say, amen, amen. I mean, I think of some of the stupid things that I did before I knew Christ that I thought would bring me satisfaction. I was a moron. I was. I think of the things I said, the people I hung out with, things I did, how cool I thought I was. And maybe the drugs you experimented with or the alcohol you would drink, think it would bring some comfort in your life or some moral relationship you're in, you thought this would bring satisfaction. You know, I'll hear Christians talk about Oh, before I was saved. Yeah, you know, before I was saved, I did this and I did that. It's like they're talking about the good old days. Yeah, the good old days. I think, what are you talking about? Yeah, I remember the good old days when you went to all those parties and you felt so alone while you were sitting there. All the fake friends that you used to surround yourself with because you wanted some, they wanted something from you. Remember, I remember feeling more alienated and more isolated. Yeah, right, the good old days. Let me tell you about the good old days according to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2 and 3. He says, You used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. Now that's an honest look back. We were dead. We were doomed a prisoner to our own lust and subject always to God's anger. That's where we came from. Now, why on earth, why in the world would we go through, when we go through difficult times, do we suddenly think, well, i got to go back to that instead of turning to God? 
Oh, you know, I just, man, I just gotta, I mean, I'm having to, I gotta have a few drinks. I mean, I, man, I, I gotta do this. I gotta go to go, go to this party. I gotta do this. Peter says, I know life is hard. Peter says, I know you're going through difficult times, struggles. But going back to your old life isn't going to bring peace in your life, only more turmoil. Again, that's why he said in verse 13, back in 13, we're to rest your hope fully upon the grace that is brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Because in Jesus Christ is the only place we have hope. And when we have hope, we have peace. No more turmoil. But you're not going to find hope from your old life. It's only your new life in Christ. Now, when Peter uses the words, the former lust, in verse 14, he's saying you don't have to behave the way you used to before you knew better. Again, he's saying grow up. Simply put, there are things that you used to do you're not to do any longer. People used to hang out with, don't hang out with them any longer. They're, they're not good for you. Internet sites you used to visit that you have no business looking at. There's books you used to read that you ought not you just leave alone. See, we need to live our lives so that people can tell that there's been a transformation that has taken place. A transformation from the inside outside. Not to fashion your look like your old life, Peter says in verse 15, but to fashion your life after holiness. To live uh, right side up in an upside down world. Look at verse 15 and 16. Again, finally we'll close with this. Verse 15, Peter says, But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. D.L. Moody had said, A holy life will produce the deepest impression. Lighthouses blow no horns, they only shine. I like that. You don't have to say anything, just live your life and the light's going to shine out there. The late Leonard Ravenhill, Christian evangelist, author who focused on the subject of prayer and revival, and I like his quote, he said this, The greatest miracle that God can do today is make an unholy man out of an unholy world and make that man holy and put him back into that unholy world and keep him holy in it. That's cool too. See, holiness speaks of a couple of things. Number one, the word holiness is derived from the same root word where we get our English word wholeness from. Isn't that a, a good description of holiness? Wholeness. We're being complete. It's to have together all the parts which were intended to be there and to have them functioning as they were intended to function. We're whole. Listen, God, God is perfect. There's no blemish in God. He lives in harmony with himself. He, he is a He's beautiful. He's filled with joy and love and peace. He lives in wholeness. But it's the same word wholeness that has the power to awaken that desire within us because we desire to have that same wholeness. See, we see how much we hurt each other. We are aware of our inability to cope with life. And often we can put on a big facade, a big mask, and try and bluff our way through life as though we're able to handle anything. But inside, half the time, we're running scared. That marks our lack of wholeness. Lack of being where we need to be. Because man has lost his way. He was made in the image and likeness of God. And when man first came from the hand of God, he was whole. Adam functioned whole when he first came to, 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 into being. When God, God had, he functioned the way God intended him to function. He, in the image and likeness of God. But because of sin, we've lost that likeness. We still have the image, but the likeness is God. And so God determined to heal man's brokenness and to make man whole again by sending his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins. Jesus paid the price for our unwholeness. So that if I have any holiness in my life, it's not because of me, it's because Christ has been made unto me righteousness. He is my righteousness. And on the day that I stand before God, it will be because Christ died for me, not because of anything that I've done, but because of what he has done. 
But that also encourages me because he's the one that, that makes me whole. Not because of what, what I can do, but because of what he's done for me. And because of that, I then want to live a holy life before him. And that's the second definition of, of, of the word holiness. It's to be different, to be set apart. And you say, well, I've got that, that one down. I'm pretty different. Well, it's different in a good way. The word for holy is a Greek word, hagios, whose root meaning is, is the word different. So the temple during Christ's time was hagios because it was different from the other buildings. The Sabbath is, is hagios because it's different from the other days. The Christian is hagios because he's different from other men. We've been bought with a price. We've been redeemed. We're new creations so that we're to be different in our thinking, different in our passions, different in our pursuits because we have different priorities. And those differences are going to be measured in the way that we live our lives. We now represent Christ. We carry His name, Christians. So we must represent Him the best that we can. Reminds me of the story of Alexander the Great. The story goes that one of his soldiers was caught uh, deserting the battle. And the soldier was brought before Alexander the Emperor and he heard the charges and he said to the young soldier, Young man, what is your name? He looked up and said, My name is Alexander, sir. And the emperor was taken back and then he became angry. And he said, soldier, you either change your behavior or change your name. Listen, when we gave our life to the Lord, the Holy Spirit came into our lives at salvation. He came to make us whole in purpose and whole in practice. But if there is not the least bit of your desire in your heart to live a holy life pleasing to God, then you really need to seriously question if your faith in Christ is even genuine. Notice what Peter says at the end of verse 15. He says, But as he who called you is holy, he says, Be holy in some of your conduct. No, it doesn't say that, does it? Be holy in most of your conduct. No, that's not right either. Be holy in all of your conduct. In every area of your life, God desires holiness. Central California, there's a castle called Hearst Castle. I don't know if you've ever been there, if you've ever visited. It was uh, built by the late William Randolph Hearst, a newspaper journalist. Uh, it's it's kind of cool. You can take tours and you can go into the, the, the rooms and they're kind of roped off and you can see this room and that room and there's outside pools and stuff. Well, my wife Lisa and I went there many years ago and because Lisa's in a wheelchair, she couldn't go in some of the rooms. So they actually took us behind the ropes and let us go on in different rooms that people don't usually get to see. Now, I thought that was so cool because whenever you go on tours like that, you want to see what's behind the other door. You want to go behind the ropes. And we were going behind the ropes. Oh, look at this. No one else gets to see this, but we get to see this. This is, this is cool. Listen, when you give your life to Jesus Christ, you give him access to every room in your heart. He wants access to every room in your heart. All your conduct, he says. Let me make this even clearer. This means that my focus is on God. When I wake up, it's all about God. God in the shower, God at the breakfast table, God in the car, God at the office, God at the factory, God in the classroom, God in the boardroom, God in the bedroom. All your conduct, all your conduct is focused on God. Holiness is letting God conquer uh, inner space. And when he conquers inner space, your outer space is going to be just fine. Be holy for I am holy says the Lord. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. And if it's a command, then God gives us the power and the strength to do that. He's called us to live holy lives, set apart, different and whole. There's no exceptions to this call. It's not just 
pastors on Sunday or Sunday school teachers or worship leaders. Every Christian is called to be holy. Jerry Bridges, in his book, The Pursuit of Holiness, said this. It is true that the desire for a holy life may only be a spark at the beginning, but that spark should grow till it becomes a flame. A desire to live a life holy and pleasing to God. True, our salvation brings with it a desire to be made holy. When God saves us through Christ, He not only saves us from the penalty of sin, but also from its dominion. In other words, we are free to live lives completely committed to holiness. Very simple, really what Peter was saying. Before you were saved, you had no choice to follow your, or indulge in fleshly lusts. But now that you're spiritually alive, spiritually whole, you are enabled by God's Spirit to follow His Word, His will, and His way. You're a child of God. And like any child, you've inherited the nature of your parent, so we should act accordingly. Again, that's not automatic. Okay, I'm going to be holy because when we still have our flesh to contend with and it's a battle, but in order to even pursue holiness, you must daily decide to not live in the flesh and look to your future. We've been set free from the ignorance that leads us to indulge in our flesh and our lusts. We no longer live for this passing world that's temporary, but that which will never fade away, eternity in heaven with our Savior. So let's commit our lives living holy life, not going backwards, but pressing onward in a relationship with the Lord. As Paul would say in Philippians 3.13, there's one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, I reach forward to the prize which are ahead, pressing towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning, Lord. We thank you for the privilege that we have, Lord, to be able to gather together, to be in your word, and to have your spirit, your Holy Spirit, teaching us truths that come directly from your word. And now, Lord, we pray that as we prepare to go our way, that we would seek to apply these truths, Lord, that we would gird up our minds, not allow anything, any false doctrine or teaching to to come into our, our minds, Lord, but we would stay true to your word. We'd be men and women of your word. Lord, that we would be sober in our actions, Lord, that we would not allow anxiety or fear or anger, or, or, or other things to, to, to intoxicate us, Lord. But we would look to you, Lord God, our strength and our hope. And Lord, finally, that we would grow up, Lord, that we would grow, continue to grow in holiness. Lord, not that we've achieved perfect holiness, Lord, but, but we, can, we can live each day even more holy than, than the day before. So help us, Lord, to to seek you first in everything that we do, we say, in all aspects of our lives. We give you all the praise and glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'll stand and we'll do one last song together.